alternate meaning so that hopefully this story can have new life for you. Because I think there's a lot more going on here than the straightforward read we typically give this story. This story is subversive. This story is controversial. This story confronts us. We just need to let it speak. So now let's read the story, mining it for its details, so we can see if there's more going on here than meets the eye. Story is found in Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? First off, as often as you've heard this story, did you know that it was about a lawyer? Lawyer jokes are literally as old as dirt. The story that everyone loves so much starts with the lawyer asking a question. Now in Jesus' day, lawyers, experts in the law, were really experts in Bible. To be an Israelite lawyer was to be an expert in Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and to be an expert in the history and the prophets. They knew the Bible, at least the part of it they had, inside and out. When life gave you a situation that put two pieces of the law at odds, the famous one being what happens if your donkey falls in a ditch on the Sabbath? Because you have to get it out of the ditch because otherwise you're being cruel to animals, which was against the law, but you couldn't do it on the Sabbath because that was working. So what do you do? You ask an expert in the law, you ask a lawyer to figure it out. So we are told that an expert of the law comes to Jesus and says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this mention of eternal life can have a couple meanings. For us, it means how do I get into heaven? But in the ancient context, it could have meant how do I live in God's kingdom? How do I have life to the fullest? The answer to that is to fulfill Torah. So basically his question is how do I fulfill Torah? Which is dripping with irony. Because it's not like this is a rando asking the question. That'd be understandable. But this is a teacher of the law. He literally has one job. To understand and know how to fulfill Torah. He literally has one job. To know how to inherit eternal life. But here he is asking Jesus the very, that, that very question. And here's how this exchange goes. What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So Jesus answers his question with a question, which is what rabbis did in the ancient world. The lawyer asks or answers with what a conventional answer was for that day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus agrees, do this and you will live. To this point, this is a kind of normal exchange that would happen amongst rabbis and lawyers and teachers of the law. I remember having conversations in seminary with fellow students about random pieces of theology. If you have them in any other place, it's ridiculous. But if you are a seminary student, you have these conversations like you're drinking water. It's this bizarre thing. There are places in life where we have these totally bizarre conversations and it makes normal because we're in that place. This is one of those conversations in one of those places. So this should be question asked and answered, we all move on. 
Except this story involves a lawyer. And the lawyer can't help himself. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He just can't help himself. But what's important to see in this story, or is, is that this story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, comes as a response to a lawyer wanting to justify himself and his attempt to inherit eternal life. He wants to prove how good he is. Remember this. We're putting a pin in it. We'll revisit it later. And now finally, this story that we all know and love. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So here's some cool historical stuff that proves to you that I did my homework. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notorious for being dangerous. It was a very narrow road that wound around curves. So there were lots of places where robbers could hang out to waylay travelers. And here's what made it even more dangerous. On the one side of the road was a rock wall. The other side was a cliff. You come around the corner and come upon robbers and there's no place for you to go. There's nowhere to run. But then check this out. Listen to what Jesus said here. The priest passes by on the other side. Friends, there was no other side to the Jericho Road. It was a, a rock wall and a cliff. Jesus is employing hyperbole here, which is not uncommon to do in parables. What he's saying is that the priest comes along this beaten man and would rather jump off a cliff than help the man. That's bold. But that's not all. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So a Levite was basically a good church person. We got a pastor who was ready to jump off a cliff instead of helping the man, and now we have the super good Christian who would rather jump off a cliff than help an injured person in a ditch. Brief sidebar. Get it, because it's a lawyer story. More and more, we get surveys of opinions of Christians from those outside the church, those who have left the church, young people, etc., Despite the fact that this church packaged thousands of meals to send abroad, despite the fact that this church beautified this school, despite the fact that this church collected over 2,000 socks for the homeless, despite all the money we raised for propane for the homeless, despite all the canned food we're going to collect for the homeless, and more and more and more, the feelings of people outside the church about Christians are that we are hypocritical, judgmental, that we don't care about the problems of this world, and that we don't care about the hurting, the poor, the lost, the lonely. According to those survey results, they would hear this story and think, yeah, pastors, Christians, they would rather jump off a cliff than help someone in distress. That's not the main point of the sermon, and I'm not sure it's true about Christians in general, and it's certainly not true about Christians in this church, but it's always good to know what our job is. Sidebar over. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you might have. So a Samaritan walks by. 
If you were there when Jesus first told this story, you would have heard some jeers and hisses at the mention of a Samaritan walking by. Samaritans were derided by right proper Jews in Jesus' day. Samaritans lived, in the north, uh, lived to the north of Israel and were themselves part of the northern kingdom descending from a couple of the original 12 tribes. So if they're Israelites, if they're from the 12 tribes, why did the Israelites hate them? Here's why. After the exile, the Samaritans began practicing a different form of worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob than Israelites. They adhered to the Samaritan Pentateuch, which called for different forms of worship than the Israelite Pentateuch. They believed that there was a different mountain that served as the holy place of Israel. They believed that the Israelite form of worship had been altered, diluted, and cheapened during the Babylonian exile. Here's why all of this matters. If you were a teacher of the law, if you were a master of the law, nothing would anger you more than a group of people telling you that the law you study, the law you love, the law with which you are obsessed is wrong and was cheapened by exile in Babylon. The lawyer that asked the question of Jesus that inspired this story would have despised Samaritans, would have absolutely hated them, thought they were worse than Penguins fans. Sorry. Sorry if you're a Penguins fan. And Jesus would have known this. This wasn't a big secret. It was an open hatred. So when Jesus inserts a Samaritan into the story, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's trolling this guy. And lo and behold, the Samaritan, it is the Samaritan that's willing to help the man. The Samaritan stops, sees the man, and attends to him. The priest and the Levite were willing to jump off a cliff before they'd stop to help this guy. But the Samaritan ministers to the man, puts him on his horse, and takes him to an inn where he can rest and recover, and then pays the bill. There ends the story. And up until now, it seems pretty simple. Who is my neighbor? It's the person you see lying on the side of the road who needs your help. It's anyone, anyone and everyone who is hurting, who needs assistance, who needs love and care. It's anyone who needs ministering. It's the weakest among you, the most vulnerable, the hurting. And even Samaritans know this. Even those who are so base, so obtuse, so wrong-headed that they can't get worship right know who their neighbor is when presented this scenario. That would be the story. That would be what this story meant if Jesus had only stopped speaking there. But he didn't. Jesus has one more thing to say. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus asks the lawyer a question, and his question totally changes the meaning of the story. But before we get to that, let's look at the lawyer's answer. Who was the neighbor, Jesus says? The lawyer replied, the one who had mercy on him which seems harmless enough, but it's not. If I would have asked you a minute ago, friends, upon hearing this story, who do you think exhibited loving your neighbor? You would have said, the Samaritan. And you would have been right. It was the Samaritan who rightly loved his neighbor. It was the Samaritan who was the hero of the story. And my point is this. You would have said, the Samaritan. You would have said the word, Samaritan. 
the lawyer doesn't because he can't. He can't bring himself to speak the word. He can't bring himself to name the Samaritan the hero. His hatred, his disdain, his bitterness won't allow him to. Instead, he simply says, the one who had mercy on him, the one, that one. You can almost hear him say it through gritted teeth. The story has revealed his absolute hatred. The lawyer wants to insist that he loves his neighbor. Jesus has revealed how much hatred he has for people. But now let's get back to the question Jesus asked and how it totally flips this story on its head. Jesus asked a weird sounding question. If I were asking a life application question at the end of this story, I might say, which character showed us what it means to love your neighbor? That's straightforward. Instead, Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And I think Jesus asks the question this way because of the question the lawyer asked that led to the story. The lawyer said, who is my neighbor? Jesus asked him, who was the neighbor? The Samaritan was the neighbor to the man in the ditch. Paralleling that question to the one that the lawyer asked, if the Samaritan in the story was the neighbor, who corresponds to the lawyer? The man in the ditch. The lawyer is the man in the ditch. The lawyer is the one who has been beaten, harmed, left for dead. The lawyer is suffering, hurting, dying. The lawyer is in need of rescue. Remember what the Bible says. We put a pin in it. It's right over here. Remember what the Bible said about the lawyer as he asked the question. The lawyer was trying to justify himself. The lawyer was trying to save himself. He was trying to get eternal life for himself, by himself. Jesus says you can't. Jesus says you're in a ditch hurting, dying, and you can't save yourself. You need someone to come along and save you. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. That's Princess Bride reference for those of you. The lawyer asked how he could gain eternal life. How do I experience the kingdom of God? How do I experience heaven? And here's the conclusion from this story. While we hate our fellow humans, while we have disdain for people, while we see others as less than or unworthy or as God-forsaken, we will never experience the fullness of the kingdom. Unless the lawyer could see the Samaritan as neighbor, unless the lawyer could see the Samaritan as the one he was called to love, he would never be healed and never experience the fullness of life. Who in your life do you consider the other? Who in your life do you consider beyond redemption, beyond saving? Who in your life is too far gone? For whom in your life do you have nothing but disdain? Who is it that you would honestly say to hell with them? I know that there are people in my life like that. I have people in my life that I am so mad at, that I am so hurt by, that I literally can't even with them. Love them? No. You kidding me? And yet Jesus says, find a way to love them. Find a way to love them like your experience of the kingdom of heaven depended on it. On your connection card today, you'll see some next steps. One is to memorize a key verse from the story. A couple involve reaching out in mercy and compassion to people that need help. And one involves praying for someone. 
Someone you need to forgive. Or someone you need to love. Someone you can't bring yourself to love. And I put pray for, not because that's a cop-out, but because that's where this starts. You won't walk away today, or wake up tomorrow, and be like, yeah, that person I was thinking about, the one I can't love who has hurt me too much, yeah, I forgive him. And if you do, if you do that, you'll know deep down you aren't being for real. It starts in prayer because that's how God heals us. That's how God molds and shapes our hearts so that we really can forgive. So we really can love. So if you want to, if you're ready, check that box. And pray for that person. Pray for God to give you a heart of love, a heart of forgiveness, a heart of peace towards that person. Because this is how we begin to live life to the fullest. This is a tough story. This is a complex story that challenges us on many levels. As we stand before this story, seeing it anew, and perhaps seeing ourselves anew, let's go to God in prayer to help give us grace, strength, and courage to respond to this story so that we can go and do likewise. Let us pray. Almighty and all loving God. In a fallen world, it's hard to walk through life unscathed. It's hard to walk through life and not get hurt. God, sometimes the hurt is too great. The pain is too much. The wound is still too raw. In those times, God, we need you. We need your grace. We need you to bind up our hurts and to heal our wounds. We want to experience your kingdom, God. We want to experience your kingdom here on earth. But experiencing that, living in your kingdom now, means we have to let go of hate, means we have to let go of hurt. We can't do that alone. Help us, God. Help us to forgive. Help us to love. Help us to be at peace. And as we go into the world, help us be people of peace. Lead us to others that need healing and comfort. so that they too can cast aside hurts and pains and live in the fullness of your love. All this we pray in Christ's name. 
who received our hurts and loves us still. Amen. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a story about our need to love those whom we consider other. We're reminded when we come to the table that that is precisely what God has done. That we were the other to God. And God bridged that divide To God's own hurt, to God's own pain, God came and forgave and loved. And because of that, we can be healed as well. We recall on the night that Jesus gave himself up for us, he took bread broke the bread, gave thanks to God, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, again gave thanks to God, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this all of you. This is my blood of a new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Almighty and all loving God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here, and on these gifts of bread and juice, make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we might be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world, until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with your Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty God, now and forever. Amen. The disciples asked Jesus, Lord, how should we pray? And Jesus responded with this prayer, so we lift it up as ourselves followers of Christ and those who have been made children of God, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As we prepare to come forward and offer ourselves as holy and living sacrifices in union with Christ's offering for us. I want to pray um, a prayer over our offering basket as we look for God to, to bless this church um, in many ways, but one of them being financially. Let's pray. God, with our other prayers, we lift to you spirit and life's finances. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and break through in a way that we have not been able. Please do what we cannot do ourselves. Change what we cannot change ourselves, including you changing us. 
We pray your power and glory be at work here without limits. In Jesus' name, amen. Communion at Spirit Life is open to all, regardless of age or church membership. This is, um, we believe this is a way you can encounter Jesus, and we invite you to come forward uh, 